Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is the weirdest thing podcast. I'm Scotty Mather, by the way. Yes, my name is Amelia Ampuero, and, and we're uh, your hosts. We're your hosts, and uh, yeah, no, things are going pretty good. Uh, the one thing, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because uh, I don't want to be like that guy who talks about this all the time. But I kind of recently, I've been like trying to do the whole gluten free thing. Oh. And I, gotta I was say, like, I was like, I have no idea where this conversation is going. <laughs> Continue. I was going to say, like, uh, I was skeptical going in and I think I might be, I might be sold. Might, might be, be sold. sold. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, one thing is my eyes don't feel like they're going to explode all the time. So that's, okay. that's good. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, like, other than that, that's, that's the, that's the only kind of exciting change in my life. Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. I was just reminded of something that I meant to tell you mm. off mic. Uh, so just remind me to tell you about it later. Okay. <laughs> we'll see if I remember. <laughs> okay. Uh, amazing. Yeah. Nothing really new is new with me. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know what? Let's just get into it. Let's just do the thing. Let's just get into it. Uh, as we already discussed off mic i am going first yep okay i'm excited uh okay we're gonna begin with a beginning okay okay we're going so, back like 100 million years to the no 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 no, okay. no 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 right. not at all just uh, a beginning uh okay so once there was a girl named jenny mm-hmm. and she was like all other girls except for one thing she always wore a green ribbon around her neck Today, I'm going to tell you about the ghastly origins of the girl with the green ribbon and other headless women tales. Ooh, I'm I'm so in. I'm so into this one. Okay. Fantastic. Sources for this are Mental Floss, uh, Granta.com, Horror Homeroom, Scary Studies, Book Riot, Ranker.com, BuzzFeed, and uh, Vox.com. Another one where uh, Wikipedia is not a source. Mm. So you will not be getting my $2 Wikipedia. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, okay. So even if you're not familiar with the story's title, The Girl with the Green Ribbon, most of us know the story. Scotty, do right. you know the story? It's been a long time. Um, so, I know that the ribbon comes off and the head hits the floor. That's what exactly, I remember. Exactly. Exactly. So. There is a girl. She always wears a, re- a green ribbon around her neck. She meets a boy. They fall in love. The boy's like what's the deal with this green ribbon? And she's Mm -hmm. like, don't worry about it. And finally, in the one that most of us know on her deathbed, she's like, you can take the green ribbon off. And her husband does. And her head rolls off the bed onto the floor, the green ribbon being the thing that connected it to her body. Interesting, Um, because I think that's not the version that I know. The version I know is a little darker. (laughs) And that's very, that's completely possible because Mm -hmm. there are several versions of that, which I'm going to get into. So if you're like a Gen Xer or millennial, you probably remember the story being part of Alvin Schwartz's scary stories to tell in the dark. Mm -hmm. Um, The thing is, is that it never actually appeared in scary stories. 
the dark. I, say, I didn't think it was in there. No, it actually appeared in another Schwartz book titled In a Dark, Dark Room, which mm. is an which is an early reader book. So this mm. is a book. I remember that, that one. Mm-hmm, yeah. This is a book that is written for kids when they are learning to read and they it's basically like to build kids confidence as they're reading but when they still need like a little mm-hmm. bit of help the original story is like 200 words long yeah i mean not a lot too that that is an interesting choice for like here for like a five-year-old and then her head falls off like, yeah yeah And I do think, quick sidebar, I do think it's really interesting that Alvin Schwartz was writing for spooky kids Mm -hmm. and he was giving spooky kids like early, like the early reading material that they would need to become Mm -hmm. readers Mm -hmm. because scary stories to tell in the dark, even though the book is the books, because there's a couple in the series. There's three of them. Traumatizing. (laughs) Mostly because of the art. Yeah. Mostly because of the art. Uh, Harold is traumatizing for me. Me, Ty Doty Walker is the one that <sighs> still fucking scares me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that one. And there's another one about the two little girls who are bad. Mm, and their right. mom's like, if you don't, if you don't stop being bad, like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to leave and a witch is going to come and they can finally come home one day. And like, mm-hmm. there's an old witch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But language wise grammatic wise they are young reader yeah they really are which i just think is like super cool that he was like you know what there's creepy kids like scotty out there (laughs) well i mean i have because i mean i still like if i'm not so much in albuquerque but if i'm like up at my parents house which is like kind of near like a big open woods area and -hmm. this was certainly true of the house i grew up in which was like literally backed up on national forest yeah. Like, if I hear something outside, my immediate thought is, like, I'm waiting to hear the Me Tai Doty Walker song. Because, like, yeah. Let's not even talk about it. I have to leave the door open for my dog <laughs> to be able to, like, go in and out. And I, let's uh, yeah. let's move on. Okay. So you mentioned that that is not the version that you know. Right. The story was not invented by Alvin Schwartz. So mm-hmm. let's go back and talk about some of the earlier versions. In 1824, four years before he would write The Legend of Sleepy Hollow... Friend of the pod, Washington Irving, wrote The Adventure of the German Student in a collection called Tales of a Traveler. I Mm. thought that I had mentioned that in the Washington Irving story, which was our, I believe, fifth episode. That was early. Early days. But I went back and looked at my notes and there was no no mention of it. So I I, apparently I I dreamt it up. But in it, there's a student named Gottfried Wolfgang and he heads off to Paris to stave off a mental breakdown, essentially. Mm. He's like, I'm not doing well. I... I'm off to Paris. I go, maybe that'll lift my spirits. Mm -hmm. Um, It also happens to be set during the French revolution. Mm. So one night, which is exactly where you want to be when you're having mental health issues. Precisely where you want to be. Guillotining. Exactly. So one night Wolfgang sees a woman, she's dressed in black. She Mm. has a black ribbon tied around her neck and she's huddled on the steps below the guillotine. Mm. Wolfgang and the woman spend one night together. They pledge their undying love to each other. And the next day Wolfgang heads out to find an apartment. And when he comes back, she's dead. The police come (laughs) to like, look at the body, I guess. And, 
Why would he call the police? <laughs> just, yeah. What a different time. Right. But the police come and they inform Wolfgang that the woman had actually been guillotined the day before. Mm. This is a quote from the story. Quote, the police officer undid the black collar round the neck of the corpse and the head rolled on the floor. They tried to soothe him, but in vain. He was possessed with the frightful belief that an evil spirit had reanimated the dead body to ensnare him. He went distracted and died in a madhouse. So that so that story is basically like the movie Before Sunrise, but then she's beheaded at the end. She's beheaded. <laughs> I would I would watch that movie. That is maybe the scottiest thing you've ever scottied on this podcast. Uh, okay, so Irving actually had heard this tale from Thomas More, mm-hmm. who heard it from Horace Smith, who published Sir Guy Eveling's Dream in 1823. Okay. and. I believe when Moore told Irving the story, he was like, hey, yeah, Horace Smith told me this story, you know, maybe do something with it. But also Mm -hmm. BT does be warned that Smith was tinkering around with it. He's probably Mm -hmm. already published something. So Mm -hmm. and he had and they were still like, eh, whatever. Okay. Yeah, they were not super careful with copyright. (laughs) The days. Those were (laughs) the days of not giving enough about copywriting. Right. So. Smith's story is set in London instead of Paris, basically follows the same plot as Irving's story, except the woman is the lover of an an Italian, I can't speak. The woman in Smith's story is the lover of an Italian ambassador who had been hanged for the ambassador's murder. And so when like the ribbon comes off, she's all she's got like the marks of oh, it's also all like ragged and stuff. Right, right, right. But it's not like decapitation. I don't know. I feel like I feel like the guillotine is like that's a that's a that works. I feel like it's a stronger choice. Yeah, you know. It's thought that perhaps Smith got the idea from a 1613 pamphlet telling of, quote, a rake's moral reckoning after an act of inadvertent necrophilia with a recently executed woman reanimated by the devil to trick him. I mean, I think we found our episode title this week, inadvertent necrophilia. (laughs) Inadvertent necrophilia, perhaps. It is early on, though. Yeah. So the French Revolution is like recent history for Mm -hmm. these writers right the french revolution ended in like 1799 i believe mm-hmm. so it makes sense that you've got writers being inspired by the reign of terror right and, i do always and, love with the french revolution that they were like saw like the american revolution like let's do that except just way more murdery way more murdery mm-hmm. and i also think it's what is it? It's the last execution in France by guillotine happened the same year that Star Wars was released. Mm-hmm. So it was like I've read that. I don't know any details, but I have read that. Before. Yeah, like they kept using it into the 1970s. Like just fucking commit, I guess. Although I have also heard that if the guillotine, if the blade is this, this is exactly how Scott how this podcast got started. I've heard <laughs> that if the blade is in good shape, mm-hmm. a guillotine is actually one of the more humane ways to execute someone. I mean, they, they say that about a firing squad too, because it's it's just like instantaneous, you know. I guess like they feel like super brutal, but the thing is, like a gas chamber, it's like actually kind of a drawn out process, or like a right. lethal injection, electrocution. But it like makes I don't know it how... look like a lethal injection looks real like 
peaceful to the people on the outside because it looks like oh they just went to sleep but apparently that's really not the truth whereas like a guillotine it's like yeah it looks awful but like you're done just done yeah yeah, yeah. I'm, the basic i'm what i'm saying is we should bring back the guillotine <laughs> instant instant cancellation <laughs> <laughs> i just i like i watched you like trying to respond to me like i i don't i I have nothing for that. No, nope, <laughs> no nope. cancellation of you, this podcast, me, <laughs> guilty by association. Yep. Okay. At any rate, French Revolution, reign mm-hmm. of terror, obviously why Irving is uh, inspired to like center the guillotine in his sure. story. Yeah. Alexander Dumas wrote a novella that was called The Woman with the Velvet Necklace. He wrote that in 1849. Again, basically mm. the same sort of idea I was um, say, i've seen that one i've just i've seen that title in anthologies before but i don't think i've ever read it well and i'm interested to i'm interested to see if you saw that or if you've seen this next one which is in 1924 gaston larue who wrote phantom of the opera wrote mm-hmm. the woman with the velvet collar and that was published in weird tales in 1929 that may be the one I'm thinking of. Yeah. yeah. That, that would um, almost make more sense because it's probably in like a Weird Tales type compilation. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Weird Tales is uh, also just a little tie in is kind of was kind of an inspiration for our like podcast artwork. Mm-hmm. Which is super cool. Done by the awesome George Reynolds. Yay, George. <laughs> so these later uh these later versions, you know, all of them are written by men. They center the mm. men's the, the man's perspective. And right. they have either religious undertones, like, oh, this is, she's been, you know, reanimated by the devil or whatever, or mm. they sort of more fall in the lines of like tragic period romances or psychological thrillers. Mm. In the 1970s. We see two versions that are written by women. Anne McGovern wrote The Velvet Ribbon for Ghostly Fun in 1970. Okay. And in 1977, Judith Bauer Stamper wrote The Black Velvet Ribbon, and that showed up in Tales for the Midnight Hour. Mm. So last two stories written by women, um, they vary from the previous versions in that the woman becomes the center of the story. It's told from her perspective. You know, this is where it becomes that like she's this girl. She always wears the ribbon. She meets dates and eventually marries a young man. They spend their whole lives with this like ribbon between them. Mm -hmm. He tries to take it off. The woman's like, stop, like Mm -hmm. leave it alone until one night he actually like he can't sleep if he like. It's like the ribbon is taunting him. So he grabs scissors and he cuts it off and her head rolls. That's closer to the version that I know. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think in both of those, she's always sort of like, you'll be sorry if you see, like, if, if, if I take it off, you'll be sorry. And I think either one or both of them ends with like her disembodied Mm -hmm. head being like, I told you, you'd be sorry. Mm -hmm. So we're going to come back to these 1970s stories in, in a little, in a minute. Like, yes, we have Washington Irving and we have Smith and we have all that stuff, but it's believed mm-hmm. that this idea of this like headless woman does actually come from like it's it's deeply rooted in the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. The deaths at the hands of the guillotine inspired France's aristocratic youth to throw what they called victim balls, mm. where they would emulate guillotine victims through fashion like they would wear red ribbon chokers um and they Whoa. sported what was called the chouveau a la titus hairstyle which is a cropped haircut given to those who were about to be beheaded wow yeah god talk about like 
a culture that just for a minute there just kind of went a little like crazy. Well, like. <laughs> yeah. And then they, if that wasn't bad enough, they would also dance with these like jerky head movements meant to mimic what a body does when it's what a head does uh, when it's separated from the body. <laughs> that's fucked up. It's fucked up. (laughs) Scholars, there are scholars out there who were like, this isn't true. This didn't happen. But it is indicative of like the French is, I guess, like sort of macabre way of like dealing with this. It's only a few years later we're going to see the rise of like the Grand Grimal Theater in Paris. And that's got to have a connection to this. Right. Never researched that, but like that, that can't be a coincidence. Right. And it's just, it's, you know, again, it's just an interesting thing to think about when we think Mm -hmm. that it's like, oh God, like our society now is becoming obsessed with all this stuff. And it's like, we've, we've, we've really always been obsessed with death. And then actually that is a, that is a thing about the French that like the the French in I think Scottish culture are also known to be the, like, they're just kind of morbid cultures. And if you think about like, cause even, you know, the French, they have the catacombs and stuff. Mm -hmm. So we think about like, oh, French bistros and blah, 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 with the beret and the, you know, whatever. And it's like, actually, these are like kind of dark cultures. Yeah. And cultures fascinated that, by dark yeah, things. fascinated by dark things. Mm-hmm. And like in this, it doesn't, in the stuff that I saw about these victim balls, it never seemed like it was like, oh, isn't it so funny? Like it wasn't, it was really done as a way to be like, we are remembering mm-hmm. this. That's interesting. Is, That's yeah. really interesting. Just like interesting. The red uh, choker, like something culture. about that. I'm just like, that is fucked up, but like respect. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> like you went there. Respect. Yeah. yeah. On that note, the choker as a, a a sort of, it's, I mean, it's not really jewelry, but like as a sort of fashion statement, mm-hmm. chokers were popular with 18th century women. Post French revolution, red chokers were worn in remember in remembrance slash solidarity with guillotine victims so again they're really doing this to be like you know yeah and it's like i mean it's like you know we all we always have our attributes like what is it's the purple ribbon for breast cancer and stuff but like pink okay but like a red choker for a guillotine victim that is like you're just going real literal with it's yeah it's a very i mean it's 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 this is like this is the intersection of stuff that i think is always really fascinating Mm -hmm. right like I know it's it's sort of like laughed at, but there is that monologue that Meryl Streep gives in Devil Wears Prada where she's like, you like you think that this is stuff, but this is like, mm-hmm. you know, it started here and then it trickled down and mm-hmm. and employed all of these people. And the intersection of fashion and protest mm-hmm. and fashion as protest, I think mm-hmm. is it, I'm I'm fascinated with it. Yeah. So post French Revolution, they're wearing their red chokers. By the mid to late 1800s, black or red chokers are worn by sex workers. Mm-hmm. Black chokers are also worn by ballerinas and upper class women. So you've got this like span, mm-hmm. right, of femininity wearing these these chokers. Mm-hmm. You know what? Let's analyze this shit. Let's analyze the story. Um, So it's hypothesized that the original stories, the ones written by men, you know, stories held, Mm -hmm. all all stories have a moral, right? Most, Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say all, most. 
So in the earlier stories, the woman's ribbon is usually black. And as we know, that's a particular fashion choice for sex workers. Mm. In the stories, the ribbon represents the secret the woman is keeping from the man. And the Mm -hmm. two interpretations of that could be that one, a woman with secrets and a woman doing sex work are related entities. Mm -hmm. And two, marrying a woman with the secret, like a past profession of sex work, will always end badly. So like, Mm. it's interesting that like, secret and this idea of prostituting yourself mm-hmm. that like those things are like intrinsically tied and sort of like the societal mind at this point right mm-hmm. i have a can i give you like a slightly different i mean not different but like add on to that take sure because so the version i've heard that i remember is basically like a guy is dating a young woman who's got the ribbon mm-hmm. he keeps asking her about it and kind of won't leave her alone mm-hmm. she's like leave it alone leave it alone leave it alone Wait, i'm gonna pause you right there because mm-hmm. we might actually get into what you're about to say in a minute okay all right okay. i'll hold off my thought because i have i want to tie it up i want to ask if you think there's a connection to another famous myth. But anyway, well, we'll get there. We'll wait till. Okay, so we've got these versions, you know, secrets, sex work, all that stuff. In the later versions, the woman's secret is intensely damaging to the to the man's ego. And this is where I was like, wait, we might be getting into this. So once we get into more modern retellings, the men are like driven nearly mad by the fact that the woman has this like one teeny part of herself that is not like laid down. This is the version I know. Okay. Mm -hmm. So go ahead. So he hounds her like almost daily right and in some cases he he gets to the point where like he can't even look at her because it's just like the ribbon is like Mm -hmm. taunting him of course the ribbon like isn't really a big deal in the grand scheme of things like who like he's always worn it (laughs) Mm -hmm. like get over it you know what i mean Mm -hmm. but as the ranker article says quote the ribbon is his own telltale heart hounding him, driving him to go against her wishes and untie the ribbon anyway. The mm-hmm. husband is willing to violate her trust to satisfy his own curiosity. Because yep. he, he um, basically like sneaks up on her. And, like, yeah. Her. Yeah, that's yeah, the like, version I know. Okay. Sneaks up on her and unties it or unties it when she's asleep. Mm-hmm. That kind of a thing. I saw some sources basically like kind of tie this to like latent sexual assault, which Mm -hmm. is also interesting when you're thinking about the time period that the later versions were written. We're talking about a time when the idea of marital rape like is just starting Starting to become a topic that we're talking about. Additionally, also fascinating to see that latent sexual assault is like all over the place in children's literature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sure is. Right. All over the place. Yeah. So the two women authored versions that I mentioned written during the 1970s, and this is this is at the height of second wave feminism, right? Mm-hmm. So we've got this shift from the morals of these stories being, you know, beware a woman with secrets and <laughs> beware the devil and all this shit sure. to instead putting the focus on consent and bodily autonomy and mm-hmm. the danger of making a man angry. Mm-hmm. Okay. So pause because that's the perfect segue for what I was wanting to get to. Mm-hmm. So I, I was thinking like, yeah, this feels like it's about consent. And, and like, I like the telltale heart analogy of yeah. like the thing that's driving you crazy. It's the, it's the secret. It's the, like, you've been told don't go here. And so then you fixate. Yeah. That reminds me of Bluebeard. 
the story of Bluebeard. Okay. So this is like an inversion of Bluebeard. Because obviously in the story of Bluebeard, it's it's the woman marries, I think he's supposed to be a count or something. like Okay. Or he's some noble and he's like, no, you can go anywhere in this house except for this one room. This one room you cannot enter. And mm-hmm. of course, she fixates on it in a similar way. She steals the key, enters, and finds all his dead wives. And then, like, there's a lot of theories that it's all based on, like, Henry VIII and all that stuff. Uh, uh-huh. But, like, what's interesting to me is if you take this as an inversion of Bluebeard, in both versions, it's the woman who gets hurt. Yeah. It's the woman who's punished both times. Yeah. And what's interesting, too, in that is that the secret that he's hiding is that he's murdered all of these wives. Right. And the secret <laughs> that she's hiding is that she's been murdered or been victimized yeah. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. You know, and even if you take it into like the metaphor of it, it's the secret that she has, you know, mm-hmm. had sex before, like whatever the hell, you know what I mean? So it's, mm-hmm. it is I, like, that's a very interesting observation mm. carmen maria machado who a mm-hmm. friend of the pod even though friend i don't know that we've actually ever talked about her on yeah. here. <laughs> <laughs> a spiritual friend of everything yeah spiritual friend of everything uh she wrote a version of this story titled the husband stitch mm-hmm. in her book her body and other parties yeah, um have story. you uh, have you read it mm-hmm have yeah, you read I'll let that you whole talk book? about it. I've, okay. I haven't read the whole book, but I've read that story. I've read, there's also her weird like take on Law and Order SVU, which is yeah. super strange. But anyway, <laughs> I'll let you talk about the story. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So the story, the husband stitches. It's a fantastic story. Um, mm-hmm. It is available to read on what it was at Granta.com, whatever the source mm. was. So you can go and like read the story, but also you know buy her book books and read mm-hmm. them because uh she's a queer latina writer mm-hmm. and she is i think one of the most exciting writers like th- the way that her brain works and mm-hmm. the way that she is like here's a story and then i'm gonna put it through this i'm gonna put it like through the madhouse that is my brain and i just i think she's fantastic mm-hmm. i mean i wouldn't exactly call her a horror writer but like she takes a lot of horror aspects and like like you said it goes through her filter and comes out as something like wholly original yeah yeah so the entire book and this story in particular really examine how a woman's body never exists in isolation this is from Mm. the vox uh article quote there is always her body and there are always though all those other parties who believe they are entitled to it Mm -hmm. in her brilliant way machado weaves other urban legends fairy tales folk tales into the husband's stitch to hone in on the quote sense that it is fine to treat women's bodies primarily as objects for someone else's gratification and that i think mm-hmm. is like really really what we see in the husband's stitch right. if, if you're like why is it called the husband's stitch mm-hmm. um the husband's stitch is a very real thing that is still to this day done by like unscrupulous doctors it is when women uh either tear or have to have an episiotomy after childbirth and they are given an extra stitch to make them tighter uh mm-hmm. solely for the men's pleasure i've heard a lot of awful stories about women who were like i was never able to have sex without pain ever mm-hmm. again after that mm-hmm. really like fucked up thing like a weird western genital mutilation that mm-hmm. um that, that was treated as like cute and kind of bro like <laughs> yeah know. 
That's the cigar kind of thing. Yeah. So in the story, in the beginning, the young man she's with is like just like deeply curious about the Mm -hmm. ribbon. But as the relationship progresses, he becomes more and more obsessed with it, finally telling her that a wife should have no secrets from her husband. And Mm -hmm. she responds with the ribbon is not a secret. It's just mine. Mm. If you've read any of Machado's work, you know that she frequently walks the edge between the erotic and the horrific. Mm -hmm. It's very gothic in that way, like very gothic growth kind of mm-hmm. but in a very modern way almost yeah. postmodern way yeah yeah uh and the husband stitches is, is no different the woman mm-hmm. is unapologetically sexual and mm-hmm. her lack of inhibitions in this way is like a welcome surprise to her husband right like she's she's very forward she's very like yeah man let's mm-hmm. do this like she she like talks about the desire that she has to have like a sexual relationship with her husband how much she like wants him and stuff like that right. and you know her husband's like this is great i love this <laughs> like <laughs> with a woman who likes to bone like what's what's there to complain yeah. about the problem is, is that the husband eventually escalates to trying to remove the ribbon, mm-hmm. like mid-sex acts, which is also just like, oh, like such a fucking commentary on consent. Mm-hmm. And during one of these times, she says that she has given him everything that he's ever asked for. And she she questions why she isn't allowed this one thing. And he says that he wants to know. And she's like, you really do not I promise you do not yeah yeah and he asks why she's hiding it from him and she replies with i'm not hiding it it's not yours mm-hmm. and like it's her i the the parsing out of that mm-hmm. idea right that it is like i cannot hide something from you that doesn't belong to you mm-hmm. i'm not keeping it from you it's just not yours right it's just I just I have she's, she's so much just respect so, for her. She's just so fucking good. Like yeah. She is definitely one of the best writers alive today. Yeah. And I love that like she's this respected like literary writer, but I love that she kind of works like if not in horror, like very horror adjacent, you know. Yeah. Um so the part of the reason Scotty and I are over here like fanning over her so hard is uh she wrote a book called In the Dream House mm-hmm. and I I believe her body and other parties came out first. Yeah, cuz I I read The Husband Stitch. I mean, the Husband Stitch might be the first thing of hers I ever read actually. Okay. Cuz I it, don't quote me on this, but I think it's it's possible that it was nominated for Stoker. It was nominated, maybe a Shirley Jackson Award or something, because I I had heard of it through that kind of context, and that's yeah. where I was introduced to her as a writer. Yeah, and probably like is, a like, year or two before in the Dreamhouse. Okay, okay, yeah. and like it's it is what's you know I said the thing about how she like weaves in like urban legends and stuff throughout mm-hmm. this entire story, which is told from the woman's perspective. She will talk about, you know, like the she'll tell the story like urban legend of the girl who was told go stand in the cemetery mm-hmm. and like some, you know, so if you go stand on a grave, like the dead's going to reach through the bottom and grab you. And mm-hmm. she's out there. She has a knife to protect herself from the dead body. She gets so scared that she throws the knife down. She tries to run and she can't get away. And she's like, oh, my God, the dead are coming after me and in the morning the other kids go in there to find her and she had thrown the knife into the hem of her dress Mm -hmm. and that is what was keeping her there she retells the escaped lunatic murderer thing with the hook Mm -hmm. story she retells the feral girl raised by wolves Mm -hmm. she retells that story so she does all this stuff but all of it is sort of building to this thing of like how women are like just in danger just like existing Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, but she wrote, uh, she wrote in the dream house. And that is a book that is a, it's a memoir of an abusive relationship that she was in with another woman. What I really fell in love with. And I, I think you found very interesting as well is that she tells this story through the lens of different tropes. So it's like Mm -hmm. for our listeners out there who aren't familiar with this book, it's like the dream house as lesbian pulp fiction or the dream house as noir, the dream house as ghost story. Mm -hmm. The dream house is like road trip, Mm -hmm. all of the stuff. And I love Lucy as another one. And she takes the story. And like I said, just puts it through the lens of these different tropes. And it is, um, she's just she's one of those writers where I read her stuff and I'm just like I don't know how you do that. Like I'm a good I think I'm a good writer, but like I don't know how you do that. I remember <laughs> that when I was reading the book, I was like, "You have to read this book." Like I, mm-hmm. I, I need you to read this book because I need to talk about it with somebody, and I actually do think it's something that you would enjoy. And mm-hmm. I, I feel like I got a couple of texts from you that were like that. That you were like, I, it, it's. Like mm-hmm. almost mad that it was so fucking good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. the way her brain works is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this, this story real like her version of the story is really, really playing with this idea of like these compartments that we all have, right? These things, right. these like little secret rooms that we all have and the desire that people, men have to have unfettered access to to like all parts of someone. Right. Machado's version is told in first person. So while the others are like the girl is like it's from her point of view, they're told in third person mm-hmm. and uh, the husband stitch is told first person. Mm-hmm. So when she's finally worn down by her husband, who she says over and over again is a good guy, like he provides mm-hmm. for her. He is not cruel to her. You know, she thinks about like all of the husbands that she could have gotten in the world and he like he's He's a good father and all of these things. And yet. And yet. And so when she's finally worn down by him and she lets him take off the ribbon, we get her perspective of it. This is sort of a truncated retelling of the of the last bit of the story. Mm-hmm. So it reads, with trembling fingers, he takes one of the ends. My husband groans, but I do not think he realizes it. He loops his finger through the final twist and pulls. My husband frowns, and then his face begins to open with some other expression, sorrow or maybe preemptive loss. Mm -hmm. I love you, I assure him, more than you can possibly know. No, he says, but I don't know to what he is responding. My weight shifts, and with it, gravity seizes me. My husband's face falls away, and then I see the ceiling and the wall behind me. As my lopped head tips backwards off my neck and rolls off the bed, I feel as lonely as I have ever been. Mm -hmm. To me, Machado is using the girl with the green ribbon as a laboratory in which to examine Mm -hmm. these parts that we keep hidden, the secrets that we keep for ourselves. And the ribbon is like a symbol for the ways that we like hold ourselves together, right? Mm -hmm. We like hide our vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. One analysis that I saw said, quote, it holds together her integrity as a strong woman, whether that is a facade or her true self. This ribbon lets her live her life, not in fear, but in reassurance. Mm -hmm. And like, even though she repeatedly warns her husband that he does not want to know Mm-hmm. When she offers to let him untie it, he doesn't even think twice about it. Mm-hmm. And he like, like yeah, right. yeah. And like, he's, I think she's, I think she describes it as he greedily mm-hmm. does it. And then you've got the thing about him groaning, which is like, this is really about just about having complete and total access to every single 
part of her. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, he does it without thought about what the truth will mean, like for him or his wife, you know? So back to Alvin Schwartz, (laughs) his green ribbon story is barely, like I said, barely 200 words long, but it has wiggled its way into our minds. This is definitely a story that got passed around at sleepovers. Like when I was Mm -hmm. a kid (laughs) and decades later, the girl with the green ribbon still maintains her cultural relevance as evidenced by a tweet that was published on September 1st of this year at D Elizabeth tweeted, Hot girl summer is over. It's time for girl Mm -hmm. with the green ribbon fall. And that (laughs) is the grisly and ghastly background of the girl with the green ribbon. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. That's really interesting because, you know, it's one of those stories, obviously, I grew up with. I never really associated it with scary stories to tell in the dark, but it's definitely that type of story. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm always fascinated by the, like, you take these, like, grim children's nursery rhymes and, like, let's trace it back and, like, figure out the fucked up origins. And, like, I know I'm, like, I believe this has been kind of debunked. Although, well, I'm not sure it's been debunked, but I think there are definitely other theories. But I've always been fascinated by the idea that the uh, Ring Around the Rosy, Pockets Full of Posey, is about the Black Death. Right. You know, just, I love making those connections. Right. And I think it's like, I think women's place in the horror genre Mm -hmm. is really interesting and how, you know, it was like for so long, it was a trope that like the virgin survived and uh, like, you Mm -hmm. know, that whether it was on purpose or not, but it was, you know, pushing this idea that because she had not fallen for like the temptations of the flesh, that she was worthier of survival than other people. And I think it's fascinating to see the juxtaposition of the origins of this story and this thing of like, oh, beware a woman with secrets to like, once we hit the 1970s, this thing of being like, beware someone who will not like respect, respect your boundaries. Right. Mm -hmm. And that, like you said, in either one the woman continues to be victimized like even like this is a, a digression but you're talking about you know the virgin survives i mean you're kind of talking about the final girl trope mm-hmm. what people forget is that the final girl is way more it's a way darker and more complicated idea it's not a female empowerment story yeah and part of how you know that is that the final girl is always murdered in the sequel yeah i mean the the exception being like sydney prescott like she's 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 the big exception but the thing is because by then they were aware of the trope when they right. were doing those movies right but look at you know nancy and a nightmare on Elm street she's killed in the third movie look at um i think chris in friday the 13th she's killed in the second movie you know like um they're almost almost always and and it's always like about how by the time you get to the second movie they're so traumatized by what happened in the first movie that they're almost not functional anymore right right although like nancy's a little different i don't need to go down that road too far but like but like if you get into like you know if if you just try to boil it down to like this is like female empowerment you know i mean i'm always like look at the last few frames of texas chainsaw massacre and sally hardesty in the back of the pickup truck screaming and covered in blood and right. tell me that's a female empowerment story right like, <laughs> right right yeah it's, it's never that simplistic yeah and i think like what's interesting about you know bringing it Sydney Prescott mm-hmm. and the new requels, right? The new Scream mm-hmm. requels, which I like, I love the two protagonists yeah. in this one. But what you inevitably get is like these women get hard. 
Mm-hmm. They get really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, what I think is fascinating about Sydney Prescott's evolution is that she has to be so, she's traumatized, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, by the time we see her in Scream 5, she has a husband, she has a family, yeah. but like she has to be so, there is no longer any form of innocence within her. She is mm-hmm. constantly vigilant. Mm-hmm. Um, Can I um, give a little hot take? Sure. On the new Scream. Uh, so there's not a Scream movie that I don't like, by the way. Even the ones that everyone says are bad, I actually think are pretty good. Like Scream 3. Like, I, I actually think it's like a pretty good movie. Um, Which one's Oh, Scream 3 is the- The Hollywood the, one with Parker Posey. Uh-huh. I like it. I was- like a little bummed about who it ended up being. Yeah, it's like it's one of the lamer twist endings. But like, I actually really don't like four. See, I like four. I again, I don't like not, four because of who it is. Yeah, I, I was gonna say I know I knew where you were going with that because we've talked about it. But like, I actually like that movie. But I I think it's probably the weakest of the bunch. But anyway, there was the whole controversy about how they wouldn't pay Nev Campbell what she was worth, and so that's mm-hmm. why she's not in the last movie. Yeah. Um, let me give a little spoiler alert here. But one of the other OG characters is killed in the most recent movie. And I'm almost glad maybe that Sydney, I, like, I don't like that they jerked Nev Campbell around, mm-hmm. but I'm actually kind of glad that maybe she's, maybe Sydney is done with the story because I'm afraid they would have been tempted in the like reboot. We need to like up the ante thing to kill Sydney in the last movie. Yeah. I and wonder like, how long she can be a final girl. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, let her just be a survivor at this point. You can keep making these movies, but they don't need to be about her anymore. Like, that's my feeling. As much as I would love to see Sydney come back and everything, it's like, I know the temptation because I know the genre and I know where they always go. And like, I mean, we're down to, I think, one person from the original trilogy is still alive and that's Sydney. So like, it's not, it's like how I feel like we need to like take Eddie Vedder and just like put him in a bejeweled box and keep him alive. <laughs> like, we need to yeah. like save Sydney. Cryogenically. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, freeze him to just be like, hey, yeah. you're the last one. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's how, that's kind of how I feel about hers. Like, I don't want them to kill her off and i and i know that that's a temptation probably every time they make one of these movies it's got to come up in a meeting like is this are we gonna kill sydney like yeah. we know it would be really like fuck people up as if we killed sydney and, blah, blah, blah. and, and i like, wonder no, let's not do it let's not do it i wonder what has happened in those meetings where they've always been like no mm-hmm. and i wonder if it's like not yet or if it's like we can't like yeah and i hope and i hope it's everyone else right and I hope it's we can't, but I don't trust them. <laughs> fair, fair. Uh, because it could be we can't now, but then someone else takes it over. They bring in a new producer, whatever. And then the next person doesn't have the reverence for it. And it's like, yeah, no, let's let's fucking kill Sydney. And like, my yeah. also hope is that like Nev Campbell would read that version of the script and be like, go fuck yourself. I'm not doing it. Right. Anyway, that's my little hot take rant about that. Like, yeah. I want her to actually be the one final girl who made it to the other side and is like both survives and is not like a complete fucking mess. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because yeah. like you have you have Nancy and uh, Nightmare on Street three, and she's like she's now a psychologist, and I mean she's she's sort of got her shit together, and then she's fucking killed. They fucking kill her. So like. Let's let's have Sydney. Let's not let's not do that. And I kind of I don't know if the reason like I don't know. I don't know what the reason for that is. And maybe maybe you do. I don't know if it's the type of thing that they're like, we like we need to move on from 
that story. I think and that's so- part of it. I, I think it's also like there's some like basic business decisions of we want to get her on the poster, so we need the cameo, but we want it only to be a cameo. So well, why don't we just kill her off? Like I don't think it's like necessarily all that well thought out, but like there's been this consistent pattern, right? Of the final girl is always killed in the secret, right? And like. You know, it is what it is, but like not Sydney. I'm just saying not Sydney. <laughs> I know. Not have you seen the last one? Have you seen mm-hmm. the sixth one? Okay. Yeah. Um I liked it. I liked it too. We can talk more offline because mm-hmm. we don't want to do we don't want to do spoilers, but I, I I had a really good time with it. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, but yeah, it is really like sort of interesting to see, you know, with all of these like sort of right, because what is it? Dracula is supposed to be a vampires are supposed to be a metaphor for and I'm not remembering what it is right now. But it's, it's. Well, there's, I mean, vampires are a metaphor for disease, but they're also can be seen as a metaphor for sexual assault. Right. Definitely predatory sexuality, even if it's not overtly sexual assault, it's like seduction, you know, right, dark, dangerous seduction. Right, 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 right. And or rape. So. Yeah. And I think that like, again, what we've talked about a lot with this, it's always interesting to sort of, the you know, I told you that I was like, I don't know what I have no idea what I'm writing about. <laughs> and I'm going to try to find something. And I'd mm-hmm. gone over to Mental Floss. And that's where I saw the original article that I was like, it was like, mm-hmm. here's the like sort of grisly history behind these stories. Mm-hmm. And it was cool. I thought it was very, very cool to see the evolution mm-hmm. of it and to see what the sort of like second wave feminism Mm -hmm. viewpoint did to the story and and how it like it really took it from being a a story about this thing that happened to a man to being you know Mm -hmm. a story about this woman and 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 how her boundary and her body and everything is like not respected Mm -hmm. yeah i love it that that's uh as soon as you said you're doing the history of that story i was like fucking i'm in (laughs) (laughs) well should we move on yeah let's do it all right well so I don't have a cold open. I just have like a mea culpa this week. Okay. So I told you what my story was going to be. Um, I, it gave you some options for stories because you were trying, like you said, you were trying to come up with one. And the one I kind of landed on, I think the, the way I put it to you is like, I'm going to do the story of uh, the making of this movie Incubus, which is like this famously terrible movie that was shot in Esperanto. Okay. Um, And it's like this famous, you know, and it's like people kind of put it up there with like Plan 9 from Outer Space and blah, 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 blah. Um, so my mea culpa is I was wrong about this movie. I was okay. wrong. Like I went in with some judgments about this film. Okay. I'll talk about it at the end, but I think I was uh, incorrect. Oh, okay. So I already kind of gave like the, the premise, like we're going to be talking about the history of this super weird movie. Okay. It's one of those infamous both cursed films and lost films. Oh. It was lost, I should say, for a long okay. time. And like I said, the way it's talked about is it's also talked about as a terrible film. Okay. So, and I'm going to like get into it. So okay. my my sources I did use Wikipedia. Also, allocation.com, babble.com, qz.com, which is a website called Quartz, I guess. Okay. Uh, Flapper Press, Dangerous Minds, a Tumblr page called Lost Girls Blog, a Medium article, and then an article on salon.com. Okay. So first, let's talk a little bit about Esperanto. Do you know, what do you know, uh, uh, Amelia, about Esperanto? Almost nothing. Okay. <laughs> I feel like Esperanto is one of those things people have heard of where it's like a bunch of nerds came up with this language. So it's like a fake language. Okay. But even like the history of Esperanto is way more interesting and way darker 
than I think people realize. <laughs> okay. So Esperanto, it's the world's most widely spoken constructed international auxiliary language. So what does that mean? Um, well, an international auxiliary language is essentially, it's a language that's meant for communication between people from all different nations who do not share a common first language. Usually these are, an auxiliary language will actually be a foreign language that is widely known. So the most okay. common international auxiliary language is actually English because English is spoken almost everywhere in the world. Yeah. But there's a couple of versions of English that are specifically used for this purpose. Uh, there's basic English, okay. which is a simplified version, which shares the same grammar as English, but a very reduced vocabulary of only a thousand words. So it's like just the facts, like just like pure communication, you know, make communication as simple okay. as possible. And then another one that actually your brother, your oldest brother would know is aviation English. Ah, interesting. Okay. Because English is used uh, to help pilots and their traffic controllers all over the world communicate. This was mm -hmm. recommended in 1951 by the International Civil Aviation Organization. They recommend that English be universally used for basically all international flights. And aviation English is interesting because it's real. it's like numbers, airplane terms, the end. <laughs> yeah. Because it's like just direct communication. If you're a Russian pilot flying into Bolivia, mm -hmm. you know, how are we going to communicate aviation yep. English? So that's an international auxiliary language. Interesting. A constructed language is a language that instead of its phonology, grammar, and vocabulary having developed naturally over millennia, it actually was instead mm -hmm. consciously devised for some specific purpose. Okay. The most commonly like known constructed languages today are like nerdy fictional languages. Klingon. Okay. Dothraki. Elvish. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Esperanto is also a constructed language, but it was not okay. written to be used in like weird pop culture things, which is kind of interesting because we'll get to it when we talk about Incubus. It was really meant to be like this way of uniting peoples from all around the world. So to understand that, you got to go back to the guy who created it, a guy named L.L. Zamenhof. He was a Warsaw-based Jewish ophthalmologist. He created... Or he, I should say, he published the first book on Esperanto in 1887. Okay. Uh, it grew out of his experience as a Jew growing up in the Russian Empire. Mm. Poland at the time, you know, this is pre-World War One, but, like, the stage was set for some of the, sh the terrible shit that was going to happen in the 20th century. And Poland was part of the Russian Empire. Russians, famously, were not good to Jews. Uh, we had, like, I mean, we talked about it when we talked about An American Tale. You know, the Russian right. pogroms and stuff. Right. So Zamenhof, he grew up in that environment where Poland was deeply divided among ethnic and religious lines. So Germans, Poles, Jews, and Russians all were living together and all saw each other as enemies. And there were frequent and often violent clashes between them. Mm. Usually the people who lost out the most in these clashes were the Jews. So Zamenhof was like, let's, let's try and get away from this. So he concluded, quote, the diversity of languages is the first or at least the most influential basis for the separation of the human family into groups of enemies. Basically, we have we talk too many different languages. If we all spoke the same language, we'd all be one people. Okay. Even though he was an ophthalmologist, he was like very multilingual. He spoke fluently German, Russian, Yiddish, and Polish, and had some fluency in Latin, English, and Italian. 
Wow. So, uh, like I said, Esperanto, uh, but it was intended to be okay. a universal second language for international communication. He wanted to unite the world, transcend all international rivalries or all national rivalries. The name Esperanto comes from the the Esperanto word for hope. He published the first book called Un, Unua Libro, which means first book. It was published in 1887. It was basically like just a book on uh, Esperanto grammar. And he published it under the pseudonym Doctoro Esperanto, which in Esperanto means Dr. Hopeful. Okay. So Esperanto is largely, I mean, you can probably tell like when I say Unua Libro or Doctoro Esperanto, mm-hmm. you can tell this is like a pretty heavily Latin-based language. Yeah. But the reason he was using Latin was it was like a lot of people study Latin. Um, well, okay. I'll get there, around Europe. <laughs> right. So he thought, you know, if I pick Latin, that has the highest chance of people already kind of knowing, like having a foundation to learn it. Um, there are influences from Russian, Polish, English, and German. The biggest emphasis and the things that really characterize Esperanto is that it has an extremely simplified grammar. Um, it's very familiar uh, Latin-based vocabulary and phonetic spelling. So the words okay. sound like how they're spelled. To the point where when I say okay. Doctoro Esperanto, it's a K and not a C. Because he didn't want there to be any confusion that it's a k, it's a doctoro, not a dostoro, right? Interesting. Okay. So here's the thing about Esperanto. It's like this is one of the things people make fun of a lot. It's like Esperanto, this goofy, like they treat it like it's Klingon, but like if you really trace it back, it's like mm-hmm. very much was created with like the best of intentions. You know, another thing Zamenhof did that allowed Esperanto to kind of evolve is he actually he didn't create a rigid system for it, a rigid group bunch of rules. He allowed feedback from others, so people were able to kind of bring in their own influences and stuff to develop it over time. So here's some of the advantages of Esperanto. The pronunciation has been entirely standardized, as has the grammar. We'll talk about the pronunciation when we get to the movie. It's designed to be very easy to learn. This is especially true if you're already European or an English speaker, um, and certainly if you have a Latin background. It does not belong to any one country, so it transcends national rivalries. Mm-hmm. And it actually can be used to help you learn other European languages. So, like, Esperanto is super easy to learn, so you can use it to learn Italian or to learn German. Okay. Disadvantages. Basically, just a bunch of, like, today, it's just, like, a few nerds speak it, like, like it, it did not. It did not become the universal language. Um, also, it's probably real great if you're European. If you're from Nigeria or you're from mm. Vietnam, like mm-hmm. it doesn't help you at all. <laughs> it's right, super Eurocentric, right. but you know. Okay. But again, got, dude was trying, and it was immediately popular. An Esperanto-speaking group sprang up all around Europe and North America. And within a few years, just a few years, there are millions of active users that all put on these, like, Esperanto conventions where you would go to this convention and just everyone's talking Esperanto to each other. There was even a country, a place called Neutral Moresnet, that made Esperanto its official language. It was a tiny little principality, which means it's probably, like, Morocco-sized or something. I didn't look it up. Uh, it was between Belgium and Germany, and they adopted Esperanto as an official language. This is a, wait, yeah. Did you mean Monaco or did you mean Morocco? Monaco. Did I say Morocco? Okay, yeah, because Morocco is like super <laughs> huge. Um, no, Monaco, Monaco. <laughs> I was like, and I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> no, Monaco. 
Yeah. Got it. Okay. <laughs> Morocco's like just didn't want to have to one beg. of the largest countries in Africa, land-wise. <laughs> <laughs> we we don't we don't know what kind of listenership yeah. we have in Morocco. Yeah, we don't need the Moroccans. We just want to make sure like, not to motherfucker. <laughs> like, get your shit together. <laughs> canceled <laughs> again. Canceled again. Twice in one episode. <laughs> no, it's it's. I'm guessing it's like Liechtenstein or Monaco or Luxembourg or something. Right. It was it was called Neutral Moors Net. It lay right between Belgium and Germany, and they adopted Esperanto as its official language. It could not find the exact year, but we're talking before World War One. Mm, okay, this was because they were really wanting to like remain neutral between the Germanic and Frankish francophone spheres of influence. Okay, unfortunately, neutral Moors Net was invaded by Germany during World War One, and then it was ultimately annexed by and divided between Belgium and France. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was the one country that adopted Esperanto as an official language and uh, for like five minutes, basically. There was a serious movement, though, to make Esperanto the official language of the League of Nations, um, which is obviously the precursor to the United Nations. Yeah. And it sounds like it was like a serious, like people were like, no, we should use Esperanto because the whole idea is like we're this league, we're this transcending national boundaries league right right france was like nah no veto so that never happened mm-hmm. also the early soviet union they were interested in using esperanto because you know we're talking about the you know they were out there conquering half of eastern europe and bringing everything into their sphere of influence and you had czechoslovakia hungary germany poland russia ukraine like all these countries were you know part of the soviet union do not share right. a language so they were like esperanto and stalin was known to have been a uh, a devotee and he studied it I think they ultimately did not go with it because even though Russian does certainly have an influence on Esperanto, the Latin basis of it made it less attractive for mm. because it uses like the Latin alphabet, not the Cyrillic alphabet, things like that. Okay. So like never happened. But the 1920s was seen as like a golden age for Esperanto. And it's like that I said, makes it's, sense. I feel like I feel like people were just losing. They were just losing their goddamn minds. Like they were like, we don't have to wear underwear anymore. <laughs> like, we're gonna, we're just gonna all talk this one weird language. Yeah, everybody's hopped up on bathtub gin. Yeah. We're gonna speak Esperanto. Like, yeah. let's get wild. Yeah, and there were actually like some writers. It was catching on with writers who uh, were really trying to like push it as like Mm. you know a language for like fiction and stuff so like uh the first female novelist to write in esperanto was an australian writer named edith elaine sinat she wrote a novel called lilio which was published in 1918 obviously written in esperanto a bunch of other writers including julia baggy eugenio mihalski henrik lucan i don't really know who any of these people are but they were all (laughs) trying out Esperanto. You do have some uh-huh. modern writers, like uh, or more modern writers, like Claude Perrone and William Ald. Okay. William Ald wrote almost exclusively in Esperanto, and he was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1999, 2004, and 2006 for works that were written in Esperanto. So he is to this day, I believe, the only person ever nominated for the Nobel Prize in huh. literature for works written in Esperanto. Huh. Um, his masterpiece is called La Infana Raso, which means the infant race. Mm-hmm. And it's a long poem that, quote, explores the role of the human race in time and in the cosmos. 
If you go to the Universal Esperanto Association, they have a catalog of about 4,000 books, including I think I saw it was like 135 novels written in Esperanto. There are also, even today, two major Esperanto magazines, Literatura Foiro and Belletra Amanico. Uh, okay. They're still published today. But part of why Esperanto never actually became the universal second language, I'm not sure that it ever really would have, but I guess it was not in Esperanto in like the 1920s. I don't know who. Uh, a young man who you might have heard of named Adolf Hitler. You know... <laughs> 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 Listen, Hitler ruins everything. It's yeah. really just what a shit bag. What a shit bag. And I mean, look, there are all of the reasons why Hitler was a shit bag, but let's just talk about the Esperanto thing. Let's, yeah, let's hone in on that. <laughs> he actually singles out Esperanto in Mein Kampf. Seriously? Yeah, because he says Esperanto is part of the Jewish conspiracy to take over the world. And to be fair, he's not entirely wrong because it was created by a Jew who was like, let's make the world better with this language. Right. Let's all speak the same language. Yeah. And Hitler was like, go fuck yourself because like, A, not a fan of the Jews. Right. Also not a fan of like international cooperation and like, you know, races all working together and being one people. That was that was not Hitler's, uh, surprisingly, yeah. not Hitler's thing. Right. So actually, once the Nazis took over, this is, um, I don't mean to be super glib about it, because actually they ended up killing a bunch of people. Yeah. They were like pushing Esperanto, like Esperanto mm-hmm. enthusiasts. Luckily, by this point, Zamenhof had already passed away. He didn't He didn't have to watch this. He, he died, I want to say it was like right around the end of World War One. Okay. But Esperanto, it never died out. Like I said, there it still has its enthusiasts. There are about 2 million fluent speakers today. Um, it goes through these periodic attempts at revitalization, including in film, which I'm going to talk about here in a second. So I just want to like throw it out there that like Esperanto is one of those things I always thought was like goofy and stupid. Right. And then I'm doing the reading. I'm like, Esperanto is super not goofy and stupid. Yeah. So again, brought some judgment to the story that has been debunked. Very cool. Okay, let's talk about the movie Incubus. Let's talk about it. So Incubus was the brainchild of two dudes, a producer named Anthony M. Taylor. I think that's his name. Let me make sure I'm right. Yeah, Anthony M. Taylor. He was a producer. And then a writer-director named Leslie Stevens. Now, Leslie Stevens is going to be known to horror and sci-fi people as the guy who created The Outer Limits, the TV show. Okay. The uh, Outer Limits was canceled in 1965, and he was he had a production company called Daystar Productions, and a lot of the people who were working on the Outer Limits were like employees of this company, and he was like, I don't want to lose all these people, so let's like go make a movie to keep my team together. So Hold a, on, yeah. t- t- time out. Did they like remake the Outer Limits? It's been remade a couple times. Like, there's definitely been a more modern version. I don't remember when. I'm trying I'm trying to remember because I feel like there was something that was on around the time that the X-Files was on and I would catch it because it came on after the X-Files I or think something. It, I think it was The Outer Limits. And yeah. I don't remember anything about the show other than there was one episode where it's like in the future, aliens have invaded and a human gets caught and is like put in a gel cell on this like alien spaceship. And he's in there with another woman. And the guy is basically like a 
like part of like the human resistance, right? Mm-hmm. And as they're sitting there, sorry to completely hijack your story. No, but go for it. as they're like sitting in the cell, they get to talking. And like occasionally like they'll the aliens will come in and they'll like take the woman away mm-hmm. um and do stuff. And and as they get to know each other, he starts being like, well, this is this is like what our plan is and this is what we want to do. And the woman starts showing up with like these scaly patches and she's mm-hmm. like they're experimenting on me. They're like trying to mm-hmm. see if they can turn humans into Mm-hmm. part of their species moral of the story is he ends up spilling all of the secrets and she's finally is like thank you for that and he's like what do you mean and she's like well they're not trying to change me into an alien they're changing me back mm-hmm. so she's been like a secret it sounds alien super spy. it sounds super out of the limits so that's probably what you're and it of. sounds so stupid but that story fucked me up so bad well here's the thing about the outer limits so there are three the, and I, you're saying apologize for hijacking my, my story, but look, I'll talk about these shows all day long. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm a big Twilight Zone fan. Yes. Well, two of the like children of the Twilight Zone were The Outer Limits and then another show called Night Gallery. And The Outer Limits was the more sci fi based one. Night Gallery was more kind of overtly horror. Um, I believe Night Gallery was the one that was hosted by Boris Karloff. Okay. Kind of towards the end of his life. These were like kind of in the late 60s. And like The Outer Limits is fantastic. Night Gallery is a little, I've seen some episodes and it's like, "Mm, okay. Um, Okay. Some of them are pretty good, but like they don't necessarily hold up that well. The Outer Limits was a fucking excellent show. And like that episode scared the shit out of me. I think when they rebooted it, I believe I'd like it's because I believe it was early 90s. So you're saying it came out after the X Files. That would make sense, I think. And I think they were taking a lot of like classic Out of Limits episodes. It's like the way when they rebooted the Twilight Zone, they'll go back and redo the classic episodes. And sorry, I'm having this like Mm -hmm. uh, recovered memory. Who is the guy who did Twilight Zone? Rod Serling. Didn't he start the Twilight Zone as sort of this weird, like, I feel like I read this somewhere, that he started the Twilight Zone, like, in response to the murder of Emmett Till? That, I don't know that for sure, but that would make sense, because I do know, like, Rod Serling was extremely liberal, and he used the Twilight Zone often as a vehicle for, like, political statements. Yeah. Unfortunately, those are often not the best episodes, because they tend to be pretty polemical. Mm-hmm. but it's like very much like like his heart was in the right place you know yeah it would very much make sense to me that that would be true i feel like i i feel like i heard that and i was like "Ooh, is this a story i can do for a show and then it was like it was it was just that i mean the history there. of the twilight zone and rod sterling is one i'd probably be interested in doing at some point he was an interesting dude and not like necessarily a great writer on his own although he did write some good episodes yeah. but he what made the twilight zone great is he hired a bunch of really excellent writers like Richard Matheson, Charles mm. Beaumont, like some of the best pulp writers of the time. But anyway, but The Outer Limits, also good show, created by this writer-director named Leslie Stevens. The show was canceled. He wanted to keep his crew together, including some of the cast um, that he'd worked with. So one of the people he'd worked with in the past was William Shatner. William Shatner was still relatively unknown at the time, but he was appearing on TV. But this is pre-Star Trek. Mm. He was probably most known at the time for the very famous Twilight Zone episode, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. Right. Um, If you have not seen Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, but you have seen the Twilight Zone movie, uh, Rebecca Rowland and I talked about this last time she was on. Uh But it's the episode of the Twilight Zone movie that stars John Lithgow uh, on the plane, looking out the window, there's the gremlin on the wing. Right, 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 right. One of the most famous Twilight Zone episodes. And in the... 
yeah. in, sorry, in the show, I feel like the monster, the goblin thing in the show, I felt like was way scarier than the one in the movie. Yeah. Well, because am I right in thinking that? I mean, I feel like it was more horrific because I feel like the one in the movie sort of did look like a gremlin. Yeah. The one in the show is this weird, almost like ape like thing with like this kind of lopsided face. So I can see, see, I can see where you're going. Yeah. I'm going to see if I can find a picture as you continue. (laughs) What is it called? Terror at what? Nightmare at 20,000 feet. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean you're right. Like the the movie version it's very much looks like like a typical troll or something. And it's like almost more like a Neanderthal or something. And the, yeah, it's something that it's like like all hairy and like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I thought it was scarier, but I can kind of see what you're talking about. It's just uh, I was like imagery search for it and it's so stupid but it's so stupid that it's terrifying like if i looked out the window i think it's terrifying because it also looks like he's wearing a blazer (laughs) yeah i think if i saw a gremlin i'd be like okay well it's a gremlin yeah because he's like in a blazer i'd be like Am I having a mental breakdown? <laughs> You're right. He's much weirder looking on the original episode. <laughs> I will say, I mean, if you just do it like an image search and you haven't seen it, it it's pretty goofy looking. It's it's, looking. it's actually like the episode, like in context. It's pretty Yes, great, it's terrifying. But, yeah. And and the the John Lithgow 1980s version from the movie is also pretty great. But anyway, so Stevens reached out to William Shatner and was like, hey, I wrote this weird script for a low-budget horror movie. Wonder if you'd be interested in being in it. And so here's what Shatner said. He said, it had a starkness and a simplicity to it. Of good and evil, it was kind of Greek in its simplicity and the way it, the events marched in the script to their inevitable conclusion. So I read it and I called him back quickly and said, that's wonderful. I'd love to do it. Another one of the crew, and this is where like I think... You need to give the movie Incubus a lot of credit because it actually looks really interesting. It's like a really interesting looking film. Well, one of the crew that Stevens was trying not to lose was the cinematographer Conrad Hall. Well, Conrad Hall would go on to be one of the like great Hollywood cinematographers. He's okay. known for at the time or like just a few years later, he shot the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. In our time, he's more known for shooting movies like American Beauty and Road to Perdition. This is kind of later in his career. Oh. Say what you want about American Beauty. It's a beautiful looking film. It is a beautiful looking film. So, like, Leslie Stevens and uh, this um, Anthony Taylor, his producer, they knew, they're like, we don't have a very big budget. We need to figure out how to market this thing. So we're going to try and go for the art house market. And so part of, like, Conrad Hall's approach to the film is he was, like, looking at, like, Ingmar Bergman films. Like, like movies like Persona, which came out the same year. And I and like I'll say, like, I'm not gonna go so far as to say Incubus looks like a Bergman film, but you can mm. see where he was like you can see the influence. Like, the influence, yeah. It looks more like a Bergman film than say Plan 9 from Outer Space does. We'll just say that. Okay. They were really looking for something to really set the movie apart. And so they landed on the idea of doing the film in Esperanto. No film had ever been shot in Esperanto before. It had been used to comic effect in the Charlie Chaplin film, The Great Dictator, but it's just like snippets of it, right? Mm. No, they weren't like buying into Zamenhof's whole, like, we're going to unite all the peoples of the world. It was because they both thought Esperanto sounded really weird and spooky. 
And Leslie Stevens, he said that he wanted to, quote, put the film in a different place. Hmm. And he thought using Esperanto would give it an otherworldly vibe. So producer Anthony and Taylor said, quote, I never liked the idea of seeing World War II movies where the Germans and Japanese characters spoke English. I thought the idea of having devils and demons speak English was a similar thing. Also, we thought it would help get us into the art houses. Okay. Um, and then a critic who saw the film around the time said it was, quote, like a foreign film from a country that never existed. I'm not going to, like, play any clips, but I'm just going to recommend, like, just look for, like, clips of William Shatner speaking in Esperanto on YouTube. It's a, it's, it's a bit of a trip. <laughs> Being real Shatner about it, but it's all in Esperanto. <laughs> wow. Okay. And I will say it was subtitled in English. so they hired someone to translate the script into esperanto they gave the actors 10 days to rehearse in esperanto so that they could learn their lines phonetically what they did not do was hire any consultants in esperanto specifically on pronunciation oh no and this would kind of come back to bite them in the ass oh okay so they shot the movie over 18 days in 1965 here's the basic plot I'm bringing it from, I'm pulling this in from flapperpress.com. Brilliant. It says, quote, in the village of Namintum, the succubus Kia becomes bored with her task of luring commonplace villagers into hell. So she sets her sights on someone far more pure of heart, a young soldier named Mark, who's played by William Shatner, who has come to Namintum with his sister. Kia succeeds in winning Mark's heart, but he refuses to consummate their relationship unless they are married. Furious. Kia and her sister succubus, Ameal, plot revenge on Mark, summoning an incubus, which is a male demon, who murders Mark's sister and attempts to do the same to Mark. But Kia has a turn of heart, for though she had planned to turn Mark to evil, her plan has backfired because she has fallen in love with him. Mm. So there's there's your basic plot. A twist, okay. Yeah. Uh, locations included they shot it was all in northern california they shot a lot around big sur beach and then the mission san antonio de paduo near monterey um stevens had tried to get permission to shoot at the mission but the authorities were like no we're not gonna let you shoot a horror movie here so he's like oh no it's not a horror movie it's actually it's a religious film called religious leaders of old monterey and he gave them a script that had all of the dialogue in Esperanto, which they couldn't read. But he changed all the stage directions to being about, like, monks and farmers and stuff. <laughs> and they were like, oh, perfect. Permit. <laughs> the film premiered at the San Francisco Film Festival on October 26, 1966. And Taylor and Stevens were so proud of having shot this movie in Esperanto, they invited 50 to 100 Esperanto enthusiasts to attend the screening. Oh. This didn't go well um, because they did not consult on pronunciation. So according to Taylor, he says the enthusiast, quote, screamed and laughed at the actor's pronunciation of the dialogue. And so, you know, who really hates the movie Incubus is Esperanto speakers. (laughs) Oh, no. They were not able to get a distributor. But the thing is, like, it actually got some good reviews. Like, people who saw it were like, this is a really weird, interesting, spooky film. Mm. But they couldn't get a distributor because, surprise, surprise, like, people weren't super interested in releasing a movie shot in Esperanto. Um, Their whole thing of, like, this will help us get into the art houses. This just, like, it was a miscalculation. So Taylor said, he said, I went around and showed it to exhibitors and distributors. They would look at it and realize they enjoyed it and that it was a good film. 
Shatner was well thought of, and so was Leslie. So they took the thing seriously. Everyone liked it, but had no concept of what to do with it. Mm. It was like an actor with talent, only no one knows what to put them in. At that time, there weren't videos. Getting a low-budget movie into theaters was an incredibly difficult thing unless it was a drive-in or X-rated. There weren't many American films being shown in the art houses at the time, and getting into mainstream theaters against the majors was nigh impossible. So it was just, like I said, it was a miscalculation because, like, you know, if, if you're doing a low-budget independent film, you kind of had to go to the drive-in market. This is how Night of the Living Dead hit. This is how Carnival mm. of Souls hit. Like, all of these classic horror movies of the time all played at the drive-ins. The drive-in is not going to show a movie in Esperanto where you have to read subtitles. <laughs> yeah. Did not work out. Other things that did not work out on the film is that it's possibly a cursed film. Oh. So in his commentary for the DVD release, uh, Shatner, he talked about an incident that happened when uh, they first got to Big Sur, California. And you got to think about those late 60s, Northern California, who were some of the hippies up there. I'll, get, I'll come back around to this. He remembers a, quote, hippie man approaching the company and inquiring into what they were doing. Shatner said that the cast and crew reacted with some hostility to him, mm. which pissed him off. So the hippie then loudly put a curse on the production and like wandered off. So here's some of the things that happened and some of the shit's actually pretty dark. So Oof, okay. not being super jokey here. And Atmar, who played his sister, Shatner's mm. sister in the film, she took her own life like weeks after they finished filming. Ugh. Here's the darkest story. Serbian actor Milos Milos, I think it's Milos, Milos Milos, who plays the titular Incubus, mm -hmm. he murdered his girlfriend just a few months later and then killed himself. Oh. Uh, her, her name was Barbara Ann Thomason. She was an actress who had appeared on screen as Carolyn Mitchell. Um, she was kind of known for like playing like the blonde bombshell types, mm -hmm. but was not like a super well-known. What she was well-known for is that she was Mickey Rooney's wife. She married Mickey Rooney in 1958. I saw a lot of people being like, and you know, and then she had an affair with Milos Milos. And I'm not going to characterize it like that because she and Rooney were separated and she and Milos Milos were in a relationship. They were dating. Okay. So I just don't want to frame it as like she had an affair. I think right. Milos Milos, he was primarily a stunt double. He was like a real like muscular dude. He was also a bodyguard for the French actor Alain Delon. I think it's I think you pronounce it Alain Delon. Alain Delon, a great, uh, very famous French actor of the time. He had started a relationship with Thomason around the time they were filming Incubus. Um, like I said, she and Rooney were already, they weren't divorced, but they were split up. Mm -hmm. um, and then in 1966, they were both found in Rooney's house. They were found dead after an official inquiry. It was determined that Milos had shot her with Mickey Rooney's 38 caliber pistol and then killed himself. Wow. This is one of those Hollywood stories. In fact, I think Kenneth Anger might have talked about it in Hollywood Babylon. That has sparked a million rumors. People have said, well, this is obviously Mickey Rooney killed them both out of revenge. He discovered them in bed together, blah, blah, blah. Super not true. He was in a hospital in Santa Monica recovering from like a severe infection at the time. So he wasn't there. It seems pretty clear that he, it was a murder-suicide situation. Mm. And then, no, actually, this is the most fucked up story. Sorry, that's not even the most fucked up story it just keeps it. getting worse okay this one's pretty bad two years later in 1968 17 year old marina habe who's the daughter of actress eloise hart uh eloise appeared in the film incubus as amael one of the succubus sisters okay. well her daughter marina 17 years old flew back i think i think eloise and her husband were divorced and marina was living with her husband okay 
But she flew back to LA to spend Christmas with her mother. And then a few days later, she went out on a date with a family friend named John Hornberg. She and Hornberg went out with two other couples. They went to the Troubadour nightclub where they saw a comedy act. And then around 3 a.m., she finally left to go home, uh, back to her mother's house. Not long after that, Eloise woke up. She heard the sound of a loud engine out the window. She looked out the window and saw a black car that was parked next to marinas and then a man ran up she dived into the car and was like let's go and the car sped off and she thought she saw someone else in the back seat she realized that what she just witnessed was the kidnapping of her daughter on january 1st so just a couple this was on on december 29th or actually this would have been the early morning of december 30th i guess okay on january 1st a couple walking up near maholland drive found her discarded purse and called the police um, it still had her cash and credit cards, and this was not good because what this told police is that the kidnappers were not interested in money. Oh. I couldn't find the exact date, but it might have been the same day, but later in the day. Not long after that, a man was walking his dog on Mahone Drive, and he found her mutilated body about 30 feet off the road. She was fully clothed. She did not appear to have been sexually assaulted. But I've, and I'm, I read some of the details i'm not going to go into the details of what was done to her um but the evidence that showed that it was at least two people committed the murder Mm. still unsolved but this has led to many theories about who the hippie was who cursed the production and about who might have killed her and a lot of people think that this may have been an early manson family murder Mm-hmm. You know, the the hippie that Shatner's talking about, this would have yeah. been Northern California around the time that the Manson family, or Manson himself was up there. That's wild speculation. Right. The idea that this could have been a Manson family murder does not seem... Completely out of the ballpark. Completely out of the ballpark. This is a year before the Sharon Tate murders. Yeah. Another Manson connection to the incubus curse you know it was a very small premiere you know so not it wasn't like a big huge hollywood premiere or anything but among the attendees were sharon tate and roman polanski um and then of course a year a few years later she was I and mean, we all know what happened to sharon tate yeah um other things that happened that people attribute the curse to that seem a little more like mm, I don't know, to me. Yeah. Uh, so Stephen's company went bankrupt and people are like, obviously it's the curse. And I'm like, well, I mean, we're talking about a guy who was like, you know, what's going to make me a bunch of money is releasing a movie in Esperanto. Maybe that's why the company went bankrupt. <laughs> Just saying. That's a little bit like they're like, and then a year later he got a paper cut. And you're like, yeah. well, uh... that could <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sucks, but yeah, it's not surprising to me that the company yeah. bankrupt. Another one that I'm like, this seems like a pretty tenuous connection. The music editor and composer for the film, guy named Dominic Frontiere, in the 70s, he ended up going to prison for scalping Super Bowl tickets. Um, he was actually at the time married to Georgia Frontiere, who was the owner of the St. Louis Rams. I'm like, I mean, that's that, not a curse. That's just somebody doing something stupid. That's a guy doing something stupid. I, I, but this could be part of the curse. Okay. Most, almost all of the film's prints, because like I said, they were trying to find a distributor for mm. this. They managed to get it released in France. And the French were like, we're into this. Like the French really dug the movie. Of course they are. Because of course they did. <laughs> uh, but could not find any sort of US distributor. So they ended up putting the prints like i'm in the care of this photo lab well many years later when taylor anthony taylor was like i want to try and get this released on home video we're going to restore it he started looking and was like there were no prints left because they had all been destroyed in a photo lab fire like 
And so this is why it was essentially a lost film for many, many, many years. Okay. He was like trying to, you know, I I think at this point, Leslie Stevenson either passed away or was like, I I think Leslie Stevenson, I think he died in 1998. So this was a little bit before he died. But Taylor, the producer was the one who was really like, I want to, I want to get this like a proper release on home video. It's now become this kind of infamous film. So there's, there is an audience for it. Could not find a print anywhere. Finally, a friend of his tracked one down, a damaged copy at the Cinematique Franchise, which was a French film archive in Paris. Mm. So they're able to get a hold of this print. Uh, Taylor himself oversaw the restoration. He had funding from the Sci-Fi Channel to do it. And it was finally released on DVD in 2001. And it is now available. Um, You can watch it on Amazon. And uh, there's also... I know a free version up on uh, YouTube as well. So that is the story of Incubus, the one and only movie that was ever shot and filmed in Esperanto. Wow. Um, and so here, back to my whole like reevaluating my prior biases. I watched it in preparation for this episode. It's not bad. It's not a bad movie. It's not Plan Nine from Outer Space. You can tell they had no budget. The Esperanto is real weird. Like it's yeah. it's hard to get used to. It's real hard to watch William Shatner talking in Esperanto. I bet it's like what, what are you doing? And like he's actually pretty good. Like you can tell he's committed to it. But some of the other actors, they're just like, I don't know. I'll stand here and make some mouth sounds at you, and hopefully it'll play. <laughs> like you can tell they're just like, I don't know what I'm saying, so I'm just gonna like say some stuff. You know, we're gonna but do our best. You can see Conrad Hall's It's it's actually like narratively an interesting film. Mm. Conrad Hall's cinematography is really interesting. Like it's legitimately, it's not worth watching just as a curiosity. Like I'd say it's legitimately worth watching if you have interest in like classic horror movies. It's mm-hmm. it's for sure. I'm probably gonna work it into the curriculum for my um, horror movie class. So cool. That is the story of the movie Incubus. Man. Yeah. What what a wild ride yeah the other one i I, and i do want to do at some point is the spanish language dracula oh yeah but incubus like this whole incubus story is just so much weirder (laughs) (laughs) that was just like we got to do that one we got to do it Mm -hmm. amazing all right good episode yeah virtual high fives over zoom (laughs) (laughs) i feel like that's 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 more gropey less high fives and more gropey canceled for the third time in one for episode the third and final time <laughs> let's wrap it up before everybody uh <laughs> shuts us down y'all if you've made it to this point listening and you're on spotify go ahead and smash that little review button give us five stars you can feel free to rate review us on any other listening platform we will you know of course do a social media post and we love hearing mm-hmm. from you all we love uh when you guys chime in in said comments and yeah y'all are awesome thanks for spending another week with us stay weird stay curious and we'll see you next time bye bye so listen friends we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find might be true and that's the weirdest thing